Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Speaking Up. This is a podcast about standing up for the truth and speaking up when it matters most. I am your host, Miles Taylor. We are doing this on Colin, a social podcasting app that allows us to take questions from listeners. Uh, I want to get right into it today because we have a great guest with us. Michael Abramowitz runs Freedom House, which is really the world's premier organization for tracking democracy's vital signs and also staying on the lookout against authoritarian threats. Freedom House is based in Washington, D.C., but its presence is felt all around the world where its insight, analysis, and work is really focused on preventing democratic backsliding. Excited to talk to Michael today. There are a lot of things that are very relevant to his space in the headlines at the moment and that we see across the world. Michael, welcome to the program. Great to have. uh, Thanks for having me, Miles. Uh, I want to ask you just right out of the gate, you all produce every single year a report called Freedom in the World. It's sort of the seminal report in the so-called pro-democracy space for assessing how we're doing. I mean, frankly, it's democracy's report card around the world. I wonder if you'll give us a snapshot from this year's report that came out relatively recently. How are we looking? <laughs> is, uh, well, is democracy well, on fire and taking over the globe, or, uh, or is it a five-alarm fire that we're dealing with? No, it's not a good situation for democracy. And thank you again for having me, Miles. You know, we've been tracking this issue for close to 50 years. We're, we're sort of like, I always like to say, the Michelin Guide for democracy. And we look at every country in the world uh, and, and also a number of uh, territories as well. And we started this report in 1973 at another dark time for democracy. We had the uh, this, this, the Iron Curtain separated East from West. Uh, uh, and a lot of good things happened after that period uh, that we tracked in our report. We had the fall of the Berlin Wall. We had the collapse of the Soviet Empire. We had the collapse of uh, of dictatorships in Latin America and Africa and elsewhere around the world, and really a lot of progress, uh, what some have called the third democratic wave. And that lasted until about 15 years ago. And starting about 15 years ago, we have tracked pretty much every year a steady decline in political rights, a steady decline in civil liberties all over the world. So we've had what we've called a global democratic recession for about 16 years. Uh, our report that came out just uh, two months ago. It actually came out on the day of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which probably was uh, uh, a sign of something. Uh, but 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 last year was a terrible year for democracy. We had the Taliban take over in Afghanistan. We had a military coup in Myanmar. Uh, you had a lot of bad things happening around the world. And you also had democracies themselves continuing an erosion in their vitality and in, ter- in terms of their strength. So you, have, you kind of have two traits, you two trends. You have democracy eroding and authoritarian on the rise, and it's really kind of a toxic stew. I, I, you know, I, I'm going to take us somewhat academic here for a moment. Uh, you and I both know Francis Fukuyama. He's a noted scholar. Around the turn of the century, you know, around the year 2000, Uh, Francis came out with a a book, well, an article that he turned into a book called The End of History and The Last Man. But his his concept in The End of History was basically that the world is inevitably headed towards universal freedom. 
everyone's going to become a democracy. And the reason history is going to be over is the whole story of human history is basically fights between freedom and autocracy and different governments and regime change and war. And once everyone's a democracy, they'll stop fighting each other. There'll be no more war. It'll be peace. And so history will be over, right? It's a very rosy, idealistic thesis. Uh, I think Francis has repudiated some of his own thesis. Uh, and it's not so clear that the world is just going to become free and that we're inevitably headed towards, uh, you know, the, the peaceful future. Why is that? If you had to pin it on, you know, one or two key factors. What happened in the past 20 years that we seem to have pivoted away from this really hopeful trajectory towards uh, the full spread of democracy around the planet? Well, it's a great question. Let me just say one word in defense of Frank. He's actually on the board of Freedom House, and he actually gave a talk to the board a couple of weeks ago about a new book that he has. And I think Frank feels, I'm not, I'm gonna let, I'd let him speak for himself, that he may have been misinterpreted. But, but, but the fact is, I do think that there was a lot of hope around the time of the fall of the Berlin Wall. And people thought, as you said, that democracy was uh, kind of the ascendant form of government that would take over. And I still, by the way, fundamentally agree with what Winston Churchill once said, which is that democracy is a terrible form of government, but it's better than all the others. Still, really, the only reasonable system for protecting human freedom and protecting our prosperity. I, I really believe that, even though we're going through a, a hard time right now. There are a number of reasons that you could say why democracy is kind of on its back foot right now. I think, and we can talk about a number of them. I, I think one thing that's a real issue is that, to some extent, democracy has not really delivered in, in the last 10 to 15 years, I think, for, for people. I think you look at our own country and you look at the failure to deal with issues like climate change, immigration, uh, criminal justice, you know, all the issues that we care about in our country. Uh, there's political gridlock, there's polarization. Democracy does not look like a system that is really effectively solving the problems uh, of our country. And that's also happening around the world. Uh, so we have to really lose a sense of complacency and really try harder to make democracy work. When you're looking around the world right now, Mike, what what's the biggest red flag at the moment? I mean, if there is one country that you suspect will fan the flames of the spread of authoritarianism and, and, and increase the democratic recession, who is it? I mean, Russia's really top of mind at the moment because of what's happening in Ukraine. But is it really the Russians? Well, let me say this. I think in the short term, it's clearly the Russians. I think democracy is on the front lines, it's, on, it's, it's at stake in Ukraine right now. Ukraine is, according to Freedom House scores, a, a partly free country, essentially a democracy, but a struggling democracy. But really for the last 15 years, it has made itself very clear, the people of Ukraine rather have made themselves very clear that they wanna be a democracy. They do, they do not wanna be under the influence of Russia. And uh, having a lively democracy on his border is something that Vladimir Putin could not abide, and therefore he invaded uh, Ukraine. I think it's as simple as that. So I do think that democracy is on the front line in Ukraine right now. But going to your point, Miles, I do think that the big issue, the, the country that I think we worry about the most at Freedom House would be China. China is a much more dynamic, robust country than than. Uh, than Russia, much more economically vital, 
there's much more uh, genuine uh, Western and outside investment in China. Uh, and so China is a much more powerful country than, than Russia. And China is on the rise and China is getting less free. One of the statistics that I think is very interesting is that when President Xi took over uh, China roughly 10 years ago, China was at a uh, was kind of opening up a little bit. I would not say it was a democracy, obviously, uh, on a scale of zero to 100, which is how we rate countries. China was 17 about 10 years ago. So it was a not free country, but it was one that there was some hope for democracy, maybe not democratic change, but sort of hope for liberalization. What's happened is that China has gotten much more repressive under President Xi. So now uh, the score in our last Freedom of the World report was nine. So it's fallen by almost 50% from a very low base of, of human freedom. So, and the thing that's very concerning about China is that China is also starting to flex its muscles overseas. It is exporting di digital authoritarianism, for instance. It's trying to track down its dissidents uh, around the world. China is trying to take over and have more influence in international uh, bodies like the UN Human Rights Council and the United Nations. I think in the long term, we see China as a much more serious threat to freedom than, than Russia. You know, last week, Mike, we had uh, Rob Mahoney on who you know, runs the Committee to Protect Journalists. And, and we were talking about some of these threats. We spent a lot of the conversation focused on the technology piece. Uh, you know, when, when you look back at the 20th century and threats from authoritarian regimes, uh, it's it sort of, you know, the threat moves at the pace of technology. And now everything's moving faster, but repression has also become remarkably sophisticated. The Chinese, for instance, are weaponizing artificial intelligence in ways that I think most people absolutely do not understand because it's unseen. You know, every piece of data you might submit, if you're traveling to China, every movement you might make on the street that's captured by a CCTV camera, these things all get rapidly integrated so that they can do not just retroactive tracking of their citizens and visitors and adversaries, but, but really genuinely real-time tracking and analysis on foes, that makes it exceptionally hard for people to organize against the regime. It seems like the Chinese government, not just in country, but around the world is now able to lay these sort of digital tripwires that help them know right away whether there's dissent, whether there's someone criticizing them, uh, and to snuff that out. Uh, first, I guess my question is, how do you contend with that? You know, how do you contend with a nation state threat against free expression that's so pervasive, but at the same time unseen? Well, there's no question that what you're saying is correct, Miles. You know, I, before I came to Freedom House, I worked, uh, well, I was first a journalist and then I worked for about eight years at the U.S. Holocaust Museum. So I really spent a lot of time thinking about what happened to Nazi Germany in the 1930s. Uh, and I think one of the things that you're really reminded about uh, in the current environment is how lucky we were that, you know, Hitler didn't have control of the Internet uh, or social media in the 1930s. Uh, we are just 100 years later, we are in a completely different information space where, where really the promise of technology, which had seemed to be so liberating 10 years ago, uh, has really become much darker. 
And the bad guys seem to have much more ability to kind of, as you say, weaponize the internet to attack their enemies, to, uh, to, to, to surveil their enemies, to uh, uh, keep tabs on their uh, uh, dissidents. Uh, I, I think about Bill Clinton. You know, Bill Clinton, when China, you know, 15 or 20 years ago, he was famously quoted, I'm not going to get the quote exactly right, but it's, but it's basically right. You know, he said, hey, good luck to China. Ne- there's no way they're going to be able to uh, 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 control the internet because uh, that's going to be like nailing jello to the wall. Well, lo and behold, uh, we've had the great Chinese firewall, two million censors who basically are spending every waking hour preventing the Chinese people from getting accurate, unpropagandistic information on the internet. So the bad guys have really uh, been able to take advantage of the openness of the internet, and it's a real challenge uh, for democracies like the United States and others. The Olympics this year. I want to ask you about what ended up happening because the Chinese hosted the Olympic Games. And, you know, these are really powerful moments for countries to display themselves to the world. I mean, you know, folks like you and me and many of our listeners are really attentive readers of the news or people who are really worried about the state of democracy around the world. But by and large, most people aren't, right? Most people are going about their day. And the few moments that they have to think about other countries and their impact on the trajectory of the world and things like human freedom uh, is when they see them in popular moments, in pop culture, in sports competitions. And there was a lot of discussion, frankly, for years in the lead up to these most recent Olympic Games, that they were an opportunity to shine a light on China's human rights abuses and to sound the alarm about the encroachment of authoritarianism. That didn't really seem to happen. It, it seemed like largely the Chinese, uh, you know, put, you know, held and executed a, a pretty normal Olympic Games. Would you agree with that? And was it a missed opportunity to draw the world's attention to the darker side of this rising power? I think the picture is a little bit more mixed than you suggest. I think, I think first of all, it was a disgrace that the Olympics were held in a country that has been credibly accused of genocidal acts in Xinjiang province, that has basically taken away all freedom against their treaty obligations in Hong Kong, that uh, represses its own p- people you know, inside the, on the mainland. So the fact that the, U- that the International Olympic Committee uh, basically ignored that and gave the Olympics to China is a disgrace. I think the first thing you have to say is the fault lies with the International Olympic Committee. And I think countries like the United States and other countries have to be much more aggressive in the future about making sure that countries like China do not have an opportunity to to use these games as a a propaganda outlet. I will say, and I I can't say that I study this in depth, but I, I have a feeling that the Olympics were not quite as successful as President Xi wanted. The, it, 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 it did draw a fair amount of attention to the problems uh, in Xinjiang province and, and the other human rights violations. The United States refused to send an official delegation from the government. That's different. I, I was covering President Bush in 2008. I went with President Bush to the Olympics, and that was a time of great hope and, uh, and optimism 
that, and, and I think President Bush, you know, in retrospect, it might have been a mistake. I think he credibly thought that he could encourage uh, democratic and human rights progress in China. And he actually spoke out on behalf of religious freedom when he was there. So I think that there was more attention to uh, China's human rights viol uh, violations than I think there might have been in normal times. Is it perfect? Obviously, no. And I think, but one of the problems is that many people don't want to penalize the, the athletes. And so I think there was a kind of ambivalence about how hard to push for a, you know, for a boycott. I wish we had not had the Olympics there. I wish we had not sent a delegation, but I think that debate is, 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 is still a live one. And, and many countries are, are, are reluctant to punish athletes uh, and, and take away their one opportunity to, to compete on the world stage. I want to go back to something that you said a few minutes ago about the feeling that the bad guys are ascendant. And I'm going to ask you a very simplistic question, but I want to see how you how you tackle it, which is, are the bad guys winning? And and that's that's kind of what I've titled our podcast. And, you know, the average person, I think, is unsure about where this is all going. Probably the real answer is not black or white. It's somewhere more gray. But. Is it your feeling as the head of Freedom House that at the moment the, the bad guys feel like they are ascendant or are we rounding a corner? Well, I don't know that we're rounding a corner. I, I would not ever say that the bad guys are winning in the sense that I think in the long term, democracy, freedom is going to win out. I really firmly believe that. I have a great deal of optimism about that. And I think just like looking at history tells us that democracy is not ever fully attained in a perfect way in any country. I mean, our country, which is, you know, one of the uh, most robust democracies in the world, has a lot of problems. But I, I think of, like, perfection as kind of a destination that you're trying to get to. And you have countries moving, uh, you know, two steps forward in democratic progress and maybe a step back. Uh, it's just not a perfect uh linear situation. And that's why we, we speak of democracy as happening in waves. There was a great democratic wave after World, War, uh, after World War II, and there are many more democracies in the world than there were uh, 80, 80 years ago. Uh, that said, we are going through a particularly rough period in which the bad guys, if you will, uh, seem to be maybe not winning, but they seem to be emboldened. They seem to have the wind at their back. And we need to fight harder uh, to uh, prevent that from continuing. And I'm, 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 I'm always struck by a quote from Ronald Reagan about how, uh, you know, freedom is never a generation away from being extinguished. You gotta, you gotta continue to fight for it. And I think we're in that stage. And I think what's interesting thing about Ukraine right now is that the unbelievable bravery of the people of Ukraine of the, in basically standing up to the bully and I think potentially delivering a defeat to Putin, uh, I'm very hopeful of that, that, that they are really showing what it means to stand up for democracy. I hope it will inspire the rest, the rest of us uh, to do better in terms of fighting for our own democracies. Uh, Michael, we have a, a few callers. I'm going to go to uh, Johnny with Johnny's question. Johnny, you are live with Michael Abramowitz. Uh, what is your question? Yeah, Michael. Um... Yeah, I'm trying to understand how it is that Russia is a bully when the United States went in their front door with NATO, you know, expanding NATO. I don't see, I don't understand how you come to that conclusion. 
can you help explain, like, you know, when Russia or the Soviet Union uh, uh, put missiles in Cuba, the United States' reaction was no different when Russia than what Russia is reacting to NATO expanding to the Ukraine. Can you sure. tell me yeah. what you think? Yeah. Well, well, thank you for that question. You know, listen, I, listen, I would say something. I always ap- approach this uh, with a great deal of humility. Uh, you know, the United States uh, has no doubt you know, made mistakes, and I'm not going to ever claim that the United States is, is perfect. Any democracy is never perfect. No, no democracy, no country ever has a perfect foreign policy. I will say with respect to NATO, the people of countries like the Baltics, of, the, of Ukraine, of, uh, of other countries, they wanted to be part of NATO. We were not coercing them or forcing them to be part of NATO. They, on their own, wanted to join NATO. And so maybe it was a tactical mistake for the United States to, uh, to, to push that. But I think from a moral point of view, respecting the wishes of people in these countries is exactly the right thing to do. And I think that, I mean, the, the truth about Putin is that he has carried out a very belligerent, very aggressive foreign policy. He is looking for provocations. His, he is not necessarily looking, uh, you know, if we, had, if we had satisfied him by saying, okay, Ukraine and Georgia will never be part of NATO, he would have looked for something else to, to pick a fight with the United States and, and, and other Western countries. I firmly believe that. This crisis is being driven by Putin and Russia and by no one else. He is the one who decided to invade Ukraine. No one else. Everything was, could be worked out uh, well through negotiations. And if he, had, if he had security concerns, it could have been discussed. But he chose to precipitate, precipitate this fight. We have another caller uh, in the queue, Michael. I'm going to go to Armchair. Uh, Armchair, you are live. Uh, hey there. Yeah, thank you for taking my call. Can, can you hear me? We've got you loud and clear. All right, great. Thank you. Um, can I ask, I mean, I guess a little bit um, related to the previous question. Like, I am in full agreement with you, Michael, that Russia is to blame for this war. Um, so uh, there's no, I think there's no denying that at the, at the end of the day, it's Putin who's made the decision to invade and the U.S. and NATO did not, you know, uh, coerce him to do with that. But at the same time, I can't, you know, I can't accept this notion that a lot of people uh, are communicating that, you know, if NATO had made some concessions that Putin would just go ahead and ignore them and look for a fight anyway. Like that assumption that you just made, uh, that you said, you know, you, you strongly believe that. And I hear that a lot of time from, you know, other you know, very respected individuals like Michael McFall, for example, who was U.S. ambassador to Russia for many years. And he, you know, communicated that as well. That he believes that even if you know NATO was to say that Ukraine and Georgia would not become part of NATO, uh, Putin would still like he was non. He, you know, it would be impossible to negotiate with him. Um, can you explain to me? And I guess I mean that's not just for me, but I I think it's an important question. You know why do you believe that? Um, why do you think that Putin would go ahead and start this war or any other wars if there was no? Um, no threat to 
Russia in that region? And thank you. Well, thank you for the question. Well, first of all, Mike McFall is a very brilliant scholar and analyst and practitioner. He knows Russia better than I do. But what I can tell you is this. If you look at the last 20 years of what's happened under Putin, I think that tells a story that I think is quite compelling to me. Putin became the president of Russia about two decades ago at the turn of the new century. Uh, he was basically selected by, uh, by Yeltsin to be his successor. And, and at the time, Russia actually was a democracy, not a perfect democracy, but it was a democracy that had somewhat fair elections, that had a lively free press, that had a lively civil society, uh, that uh, there was debate. Uh, and over the last 20 years, that has been extinguished under Putin. Putin has basically become another dictator. Uh, he's dismantled the free press. He's dismantled civil society. He has uh, interfered on behalf of dictators all over the world, in Syria, in Venezuela. Uh, he, um, uh, you know, he, he invaded Ukraine. He invaded Georgia. Uh, he's had a very belligerent foreign policy. I'm sure that there are things that the West could have done better to deal with it, but, but, but my observation is that the West, uh, under several presidents, have tried to negotiate with him. I think, I think my sense is that you need to look at Putin's behavior in the terms of his own domestic politics, that he wants to hold on to power and he is reverting to the tactics of dictators to hold on to power both domestically and beyond his borders. It's a, it's a really incisive response, Michael. And I wonder what your take is on the broader concept of, you know, if we had negotiated with Putin to, at, a, at the risk of sounding too reductionist, would it have been the, if you give a mouse a cookie scenario? Because, you know, Putin's goal, which is, he's, he's articulated for many, many years, is frankly to restore the Soviet Union in modern form, to exert control over countries in his near abroad, to be seen as a peer competitor of the West, and frankly, to undermine the Western Democratic Alliance. Um, you know, we saw the Russians actively engage in an effort to undermine America's presidential election, to, to try to throw the election in their favor. I mean, this is very brazen activity. Is it your assessment that you know, if we had, uh, as a Western alliance, negotiated with Putin on Ukraine, and I don't know, let's say even, you know, territory was ceded to him, uh, w would that have resulted or would we still see an aggressive Putin, even if it seems like there had been some short term, you know, deal? You know, it's a question that I can't definitively answer, Miles. I just, it, it requires, <laughs> you know, a level of 2020 hindsight that, that I don't possess. Uh, it does strike me that over the last 20 years, there has been an effort to engage him and uh, negotiate with him and bring him into the uh, you know, community of nations that just work peaceably with each other. 
and uh, I just don't see that happening. And I and I think he I think I think the point that you made at the beginning of your question is it is that he is someone who uh, kind of missed the liberalization of the 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 Russian the end of the Soviet era. He was in Eastern Europe in Eastern in East Germany running the uh, uh, KGB there uh, in uh, parts of Eastern Europe, and he you know, he's always been someone who's really believed in the Soviet Empire. Uh, and I think he has wanted to kind of restore it to some extent that he can. And that's what's driving things here. Can you comment for a moment on the NATO expansion piece? Um, you know, this is something that perhaps uh, Vladimir Putin did not necessarily anticipate, or maybe he did think several moves that far down down the uh, the game board there. But in invading Ukraine, there are some bright spots here for democracy in that the the core democratic alliance around the world, the community of democracies are actually coming closer together. They're strengthening their relationships because of this conflict. And we've seen two countries now decide to join NATO and, and in fact, ask to join it quite quickly. I mean, normally it's a lengthy application process that can take many years. Uh, and there's the possibility here that we may have two European countries joining NATO uh, on, you know, close to Russia's borders a lot more quickly than usual. Is that a, is that cause for optimism of people who live in the free world? Well, I certainly think there is some cause for optimism in general, but there's also some cause for concern. Uh, let me start on the optimistic side, because I try to be an optimistic person. I think the invasion of Ukraine has been a clarifying moment for democracies. Uh, I think that what you've seen in Sweden and Finland, uh, that they recognize that uh, their security as a democracy is going to be probably better kept as part of NATO. I think you've also seen some interesting uh, uh, developments in Germany. You know, Germany has been, I think, correctly criticized over time for being kind of too tied up economically with Russia, especially the energy sector. And I think there's been a reevaluation of that in Germany over the last couple of years, I'm sorry, over the last couple of months. And you've also seen the German uh, defense budget. Uh, there's a plan to increase that. Uh, that had been an issue that many presidents, uh, including President Trump and others, had, had, had wanted Germany to be spending more money on defense. And that seems to be something that is now happening. Uh, I think the thing that's a little bit of cause for concern, and I, you know, I, I agree with you, there's been a lot of unity in the West around this issue, and I hope that that continues. I think it is interesting that you look around the world, there's some major democracies, uh, including, for instance, India or South Africa, that have been more cautious about this and have kind of not really wanted to be drawn into taking sides on this, which I understand in one sense, which is that, uh, you know, many countries don't want to be called into a... Uh, pick sides between two warring superpowers uh, or, or power camps. But, but I do think not all democracies are enthusiastically supporting Ukraine. And I think that is a concern. I, I understand why they're doing that, but I think it is short-sighted in, uh, in the long term. I, I want to ask you, Mike, about um, the concept of strategic surprise. We talk about this a lot. Uh, and and I'll, I'll give you a moment to think about it. I want to ask you what we may not be thinking about that could change the global conversation 
around the fight between democracies and, and autocracies? What could catch us off guard? Uh, and, and, and one of those things for a lot of people was what we saw in Ukraine. Now, you know, patient observers of the region have known uh, for, you know, nearly a decade that Russia was positioned, positioning itself to steadily encroach on its neighbors and reclaim territory. But to a lot of people, to the public, this felt like a surprise moment is, as you noted, around the time that you all dropped the Freedom in the World report, you know, boom, the Russians invade Ukraine. It really changed a lot in the international system. I wonder, as you monitor these global hotspots, as you're monitoring authoritarian regimes and democracies that are kind of on the fence or potentially backsliding, are there areas that you think are particularly at risk of catching us off guard and, and changing, changing, you know, not just the global conversation around freedom and autocracy, uh, but, but the direction of history itself. What could those flashpoints be and what's top of mind for you uh, when you look out at the horizon? Well, I think when you ask a question like that, your mind immediately goes to like negative developments, but I also think there can be positive developments that surprise you. I mean, I think one of the things that's been kind of interesting about the last several years is that we have seen in many countries around the world a much stronger thirst, if you will, for democracy and freedom and human rights than I think we recognize. Even though the people of Hong Kong are now facing a much more repressive situation just simply because of the, the might of China, there's no question that the people of Hong Kong would rather live in a freer society. And that was demonstrated when 3 million people went out on the streets to protest greater infringement on their civil liberties by the, by the Beijing government. We know that the people of Belarus did not want to have a farcical election. Uh, they wanted to have a real election uh, that respected the fact that probably uh, Ms. Tikhonovskaya won that election. And the fact that repression has kept the people of Belarus or Hong Kong under, under wraps for the last uh, couple of years does not negate the idea that there is a deep thirst for freedom. And so I think there are many positive things um, that I think that could happen. Uh, but then there are also some negative things that could happen. I mean, I think obviously the biggest thing, I really wouldn't say it's a doctrine of surprise, is like, how does President Xi read what's happening in uh, Ukraine with respect to Taiwan. I mean, that's probably in some ways the most dangerous place in the world now, or one of the most dangerous places in the world, because uh, that is something uh, that you have to think about an invasion of Taiwan as being like a military possibility. And, and you really hope that, that great efforts are being made by Taiwan and its allies, including the United States and others, or not allies, but friends, uh, to deter such an eventuality. So my only point is simply that there are surprises that could happen in both directions. And, and my hope actually, Miles, is that we've had a number of years of kind of negative surprises. I'm hoping for a more positive surprise coming up, but where that's gonna essentially be, it's hard to predict. Well, then I'm gonna be the Debbie Downer <laughs> because okay. the next question I wanted to turn to was, uh, was a, a, a subhead in your recent Freedom in the World report that talked about the rot within democracies. Is, yes. You know, we've looked out at the horizon 
at kind of where the line is drawn and and you all really have uh had immense clarity about you know the growth of freedom the retreat of of freedom and 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 have been that preeminent measurer of of where we're at and and i'll never forget around the turn of the century i mean around the year 2000 you all released a very jubilant report that basically said you know, we've had an explosion of freedom in the past hundred years. And then as, as you've noted in, in the past 20, especially the past 15, we've seen backsliding, but there's another trend, another very big trend you all have keyed in on is not only uh, are, you know, partly free countries sort of backsliding into autocracy and the bad guys advancing forward, but within democracies themselves, we are seeing backsliding. We are seeing illiberal uh, behavior, we're seeing some worrying trends. And look, the obvious thing for people to focus on, and of course, we talk a lot about on this podcast, is the imagery none of us can get out of our heads of hundreds of people storming the United States Capitol uh, violently. I mean, that was a seminal image of this trend, of this trend in even the world's freest countries towards undemocratic behavior. How do you currently assess those dangers to democracies from within? And what types of recommendations has Freedom House put out there for democratic countries to address this challenge? What, what work are you doing to confront the threats from within democracies? Right. Well, you're absolutely right, Miles. There's no question that part of the story of this global democratic recession is, on the one hand, increasing rise of authoritarian powers and then the corollary democracies being kind of on their back foot eroding from thing and you've got a lot of examples of that you know a big story would be that doesn't get as much attention in the world it would be india the world's most populous democracy which has had significant backsliding over the last number of years uh, countries like hungary and poland in eastern europe uh, on, in our own hemisphere, of course, Venezuela, which 20 years ago or 25 years ago was a very vibrant democracy and now is basically one of the least free uh, countries in the world and, and, and kind of a, a, uh, a, 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 almost a failed state, if you will. And then, of course, there's the United States, which across several administrations has definitely seen democratic erosion in our view, uh, increasing political polarization. Uh, outsized influence of special interests on the political process uh, and many other things that you can point out to uh, in our reports. And one of the things I'm very proud of being the president of Freedom House is that, you know, we do not only look at other countries, we look at ourselves. And every year we have a very detailed report about kind of the state of democracy in our own country. Now, so there's no doubt we're worried. And I think the events of January 6th and the kind of the big lie kind of crystallized that. And we were very quite pointed in our criticism of that. I will say that I think I'm a fan of the United States and I'm a booster of our future. And I think one of the things, if you look at U.S. history, is that we are a country that uh, has great ideals, have not always lived up to them, have made very serious mistakes of which the greatest is slavery and then Jim Crow and the repercussions of that, but there are other mistakes as well. But I think the thing which I really love about our country is it's very vital. Uh, it's very, uh, there's, there's a resilience to our democracy and there are, and there are kind of antibodies that kick in, whether it's a free press or a strong judiciary 
uh, and other things. So it, it does feel like a difficult time now for U.S. democracy, but I do feel hopeful that we've been through worse than the past and we're going to get through this, but we can't take it for granted and we have to fight hard uh, to protect democracy and to protect democratic principles. Well, the, la- the last question I want to ask you then, Michael, is going to be on the uh, back on the optimistic side. Are there success stories in the past few years that you think are really good examples around the world that give you some hope about the direction this is all headed, um, whether it's individual countries and, and notes of optimism or other trends that you're seeing in the space uh, that uh, that you can assure people, hey, it's probably all going to be okay. <laughs> yeah. When you when you well, take stock, well, look, what, yeah. what gives well, you look, it's a it's a it's a great it's a great question, and I and I don't want to be Pollyannish here. There's no question that you know every year when we put out Freedom in the World, we're always looking for a couple of success stories. And honestly, for the last number of years, there have not been a great number of success stories. But let me just give you a couple things that I think about. First of all, Taiwan. You know, Taiwan is like often seen as a geopolitical story. Uh, you know, what's going to happen? Is China going to take it over? But, but, but Taiwan is a great democratic success story. This is a country that 30 years or so ago was essentially a military dictatorship. And now, according to Freedom House scores, is a very vibrant and, and lively democracy that's had peaceful tra- tra- transitions of power uh, and it does very well in the core, uh, in the core indicators that we measure as part of freedom in the world. And I think there's a story in Asia more generally that, you know, in the 1970s, countries like South Korea were military dictatorships, as well as uh, Taiwan, uh, a number of other places. And so, you know, the, the fact that Taiwan is now one of the freest countries in the world is one that really gives me hope. Uh, there's a country in Africa. It's, it's, it's a small country, but Malawi, where uh, a couple of years ago there was an election that was very fraudulent and the... Uh, and the judiciary, an independent judiciary, threw out the election results because they said that was fraudulent, and there was a free and fair election, and uh, that resulted in a in, in a peaceful transfer of power, and kind of the the real winner of the election uh, taking office. So that kind of thing gives me hope. I would say the other thing that really gives me hope, Miles, is the fact that we work at Freedom House with hundreds of human rights defenders around the world. And this is actually a part of Freedom House that I think most people don't know about. People know about us for our reports, but what they don't know about us is that we are actually supporting, you know, human rights defenders all over the world in places like Myanmar and Ethiopia and Sudan and Belarus and really all over the world. And we help them in many different ways. You know, we take the point of view that they are the ones who know best what they need to do to try to you know, fight for human rights in their own countries, but we want to be supportive of them. And I think just working with people like that gives me a great deal of inspiration. I'm going to close with just like one example. You know, we've become friendly over the years with Vladimir Karamurza, who is a very brave Russian dissident. He's been actually kind of living in Northern Virginia and going back and forth between Russia and Northern Virginia over the last several years. He has been an ally of uh, Boris Nemtsov, uh, who had been murdered uh, in Russia uh, uh, under murky circumstances uh, right near the Kremlin. Uh, And Vladimir, just around the time of the invasion of Ukraine, 
went back to Russia and began speaking out against the what had happened there. And he's now been thrown into jail and facing a very lengthy uh, lifetime, uh, a very life, a very lengthy time in prison. And people like that are so brave. He knew that he was taking great risk, and he was willing to uh, go back and fight for democracy in his own country. I do believe that one day Russia will be free, and it'll be because people like Vladimir stood up for their rights and hopefully rallied and inspired the rest of us to do more to fight for our rights. Well, Michael, I think that's a really poignant note to end it on. It's a particularly difficult time and environment to engage in open dissent, but at Freedom House, you all are big champions of exactly that. So uh, I want to thank you for joining the program. Thank you for the extraordinary work that Freedom House does. Michael Abramowitz, president of Freedom House. We really look forward to following your work. Really appreciate the opportunity to talk about these issues, Miles, and good luck with your with the podcast and all the other work you're doing. All right. Thank you. And great to have everyone join us today. If you're free this Friday, come be a part of the conversation with me and Craig Snyder, former chief of staff to Republican Senator Arlen Specter, who will talk about the results we are seeing from the primaries in Pennsylvania. We look forward to seeing you on Friday and thank you for listening.